This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm Camille Lapchuk, joined by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Welcome oh, back from Toronto. Thank you. I hear you. you had a good trip. It was a great trip. I didn't get to see you, though. It's never quite the same when I don't get to see you. And before I tell, I know. You, before I tell you about my trip, it just occurred to me, it's episode 49. We're like one away from 50. That feels big. We break our record every week. <laughs> well, that's obvious. But 50 is like one of those round numbers. It's like halfway on the road to 100. I mean, that's obvious. Yeah. But again, I think that's pretty cool. So we are one away from 50. And yes, Camille, I have just returned from Toronto. It was another big weekend. So listeners may recall from having heard past episodes, if you've been listening to Pod in Order from the beginning, that Peter always coaches the Gale Cup moot. And a moot, for those of you who aren't in law school or aren't lawyers, is kind of like a fake appeal that law students do. It's a, it's a competition that schools from across the country enter. And did I hear a rumor, Peter, that you had a pretty good result in this moot? So this is crazy um, because it's never happened before, but uh, the University of Alberta, which I coach, won the Gale Cup moot for the third time in a row. It has never happened in the 47-year history of this competition. And the best part, Camille, is I went back and when I, when I realized that we've been doing Paw and Order, I mean, we've only done it for just over two years, but we started in January of 2018. And the first time we won the competition was February 2018. So I went back and I listened just to see what I sounded like after we won because I have it on recording. Episode four, Camille, I'm talking about winning the Gale Cup and then again in episode 27. And here we are in episode 49. And I'm now a three time Gale Cup champion. Well, you've you've broken your own record, so congratulations on that. Yeah, it's uh, the Gale Cup. The Gale Cup is actually a pretty prestigious moot too. It's the national criminal law moot, and it tends to be seen as a very competitive, sought-after one to a compete in and b win. So that's a big deal, and oh. I, I know you feel very proud, but I'm proud for you too. Well, thank you. It was really cool. You're 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 right. I mean, 18 law schools compete, and uh, that includes some of the French language law schools. It's a bilingual moot, and let's just say that everybody was very aware of the fact that we had won two times in a row. And I tweeted out at some point, I tweeted out a gif of this guy running with a target on his back because it was like everybody was coming for us, but we had just an amazing team and we just like prepped for it like crazy. And I can tell you, Camille, that there were two reasons for doing that. One was because we wanted to win it three, three times in a row. And the other is that it's my last time ever doing it. My uh, co-coach and I, my co-coach, 
coach. Her name is Mandy McLeod. She's been at some animal law conferences. And I decided that we wanted to go out on a high note and we were win or lose. We were retiring after this competition. So future listeners, don't worry about episode 74. You will not be bored hearing about the Gale Cup moot. That's it. I'm done. Well, congratulations to you and to Mandy and, of course, to your students, including uh, Zach Wilson, who I know, who listens to this podcast. And Zach is super interested in animal law, too. And I hope that this uh, experience serves him well in those pursuits as well. Yeah, that's right. I forgot we mentioned Zach on some previous podcasts because he helped out on one of our animal law cases. And it was it was great going with Zach because we got to go. Uh, you should have seen Zach. <laughs> Zach's never really been to Toronto. And you should have seen Zach when he got to Fresh. He was like flipping out. He bought like six desserts and took them back to his hotel room. <laughs> the Toronto vegan scene can be overwhelming. Did you eat anywhere else or was that the only chance you had to eat out? Yeah, that's the problem. It's such a drag because like we get there, we, we did, we managed to eat twice at Fresh because we're just in, you know, we're at the Marriott Hotel and there's literally no time to ever like go anywhere else. It's, it's such a jam-packed weekend that we have one free lunch spot and our traditional I've taken them every year. It's like good luck to, to the fresh on Spadina. And then on the way home, we just went to uh, to the fresh on uh, um, Front Street, which, by the way, is like the nicest fresh. And um, Oh, super fancy. Oh, it's so fancy. Although they fancied up all of them. You've noticed they've upgraded yeah. all of their, because the one on Crawford is really nice with the terrace. It's really quite lovely, the warm, the heated terrace. And um, so unfortunately, that was the only drag. We had literally no time to go to any of Toronto's other hotspots. But that's okay, Camille. As you know, I am back in April for the Animal Law Gala and my book launch. So I will get a chance to eat to my heart's content at that time. And we'll talk a lot more about the, the gala on the next episode, after which point tickets will have been opened up for sale. And so, I know, okay, I, well, yeah, exactly. And I know, Camille, that you were busy too. There's a reason I didn't see you because I had a busy schedule in Toronto, but I can always make a little time for my uh, Pawn Order co-host, but that wasn't possible this time around. No, in fact, I was lucky enough not to be in Toronto, not because I don't love Toronto, I do, but because I was in Miami instead, and hey, it's uh, about 30 degrees warmer there. So I just got back from the Brooks Institute Congress in Miami, Peter, which uh, you were invited to too, but obviously couldn't attend because of the uh, mood. But it they was, picked the one yeah. weekend of the year, the literally one weekend of the year that I had an unalterable commitment. It was unbelievable. Well, anyway. I'm, I'm sorry you missed it because it was incredible. So the Brooks Institute, if you're not familiar with them already, is a U.S.-based foundation that uh, d delivers programming and grants related to promoting animal rights, law, and policy. And so one thing that they've done is bring people together, people who work on animal issues, animal law issues, and try to spark conversations and help them innovate together. And they hosted just an incredible gathering of about 80 leaders in animal law, animal protection, uh, animal scholarship, who all came together for a weekend of, um, you know, a few keynote speeches, but a lot of unstructured time just to make connections and talk about our work with each other. Uh, so it was cool. I met a lot of folks I hadn't met before, especially uh, U.S. organizations and, and academics. It um, it was just five of us from from Canada, and then the rest were, were primarily Americans. So uh, just a great weekend for connecting. And you can't ask for a better place, Peter, if you're going to spend some downtime to connect with people than Miami Beach. 
Well, it sounds uh, like it was awesome. I really like those types of things. Obviously, um, I've done one of those before um, when we did it in Australia. In fact, the first time that we ever got together in Australia, um, we, got, we got some funding together. And most of the people working on animal law, I mean, this is way back in 2007. And most of the people working in animal law had never even met each other. And I insisted on doing a workshop instead of a conference. I mean, conferences are all well and good, but conferences are a lot of one-way discussions. Discussion. And I just think sometimes that workshopping matters out and bringing together really knowledgeable people is a good way of leading and uh, stimulating discussion and thought process. I mean, conferences have their place too, don't get me wrong, but I do think workshops can be very productive as a way of sort of sparking new ideas. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to be exploring alternative formats for these types of educational, but really connection opportunities. And I think what they did worked, worked really well. So, um, so that was great really happy with how the weekend went and now i'm back in toronto and it's kind of cold but you know speaking of kind of cold could be worse. I, I should mention i just have to mention that i think i mentioned this last episode so i this is the we're recording today's the one day i'm back in edmonton i came back from the gale cup and i have to say because i'm very tired from everything the gale cup is an exhausting experience it really is it's just it's a, that's one of the reasons i don't want to do it that uh, i'm going to mexico tomorrow i have to say and and one of the reasons i wanted to bring it up camille was because you were saying that it was cold um, my wife checked online, my wife checked online. The difference between the temperature in Mexico and the temperature in Edmonton is 54 degrees. It's like, and that's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. It's my, it was minus 26 this morning and plus 28 in Mexico. It's like, shit. Oh my God. Okay. That's, that's the last time I complained about the cold in Toronto. Cause Holy here it's God. like, Oh, it's minus two. It's minus four. Actually, I have to say. It was freezing in Toronto the first day I was there. It was insane. It was one of the coldest days I've ever been in Toronto. You were gone already. It was one of those days, you know this, Camille, we have minus 26, but I'll say this again. You've been here in the winter. There's no wind. We were in Toronto. It was minus 10 and windy. I was walking down like Bay Street. I swear I thought I was going to die. It was so cold. I heard about this day from people who were still in Toronto. And when I got back at the airport last night, there was a sign that said, oh, you can't use this door to exit to the street because it's too cold for the door to work. And I think that had been a couple of days ago. But I was like, oh, welcome back from Miami. Cool. No, because you, you got back. When did you get yesterday? Yeah, so we, we must have like crossed paths in the air or in the airport. Um, but um, but it's true. By yesterday, it was quite lovely. It was like two degrees and it was fine. But like the first day was just like, I, you know, because I didn't bring like my big parka that I wear in Edmonton. I just brought my little work coat and I was like, holy, holy, it's crazy. It's crazy cold. It was so insane. Anyway, I have to tell you one little story, um, Camille, about my trip, which is a follow up mini rant about this whole Starbucks thing we talked about last week. Okay, yeah, last week we, we went over in some detail the fact that Starbucks claims to be moving away from dairy and having more plant-based dairy options, plant-based milk options, I should say. But Peter, you're finding that that hasn't been implemented to your satisfaction. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yes and no. It has been implemented, but not to my satisfaction. And I should <laughs> note a shout-out to our... our um, our podcast producer, uh, Shannon Milling, who effectively, you know, guilted me into buying one of those silicone collapsible cups. Do you have one of those, Camille? 
I've got a lot of those different types of things. Yeah, for sure. Reusable so, so that you're not throwing a coffee cup in the garbage each time. Yeah, so I don't I didn't have those. I don't have those in Edmonton because I literally never buy coffee anywhere in Edmonton unless I'm staying in the store because I just brew coffee at both my offices. So I don't get takeaway coffees in Edmonton, so I didn't need one. But I knew I was going on the trip. And when I go on the trip, I do tend to get a lot of coffee, mainly because they, they don't keep soy milk in the hotel. And I, you know what I mean? Like, I can't get coffee there yeah, and yeah. whatever. So I bring my coffee. And like, so I use my collapsible cup the whole time. So Shannon will be very proud of me. Although I will say... Those collapsible cuffs take a little getting used to. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's very easy to crush them in the middle. And I thought I got a pretty good one. But like every time I would refill the coffee, I would like put the coffee cup back in and it would like sploosh everywhere. It was like, I, I'm Why not... did you get a collapsible, cu collapsible cup instead of just a mug? Well, because I like I like the collapsible cup, and it, and it really was handy, Camille, because I was walking all over Toronto with my little bag, and every time I needed a cup of coffee, it was it was much easier to fit in my you know travel bag. So I liked it. Okay, I did so you like don't carry a ginormous purse around at all times like yeah. most women do. So no, fair I enough. I don't. Anyway, back to the Starbucks thing. So I get to Starbucks, and I notice that. It seems as if step one of their operation to convert the world to non-dairy has been put in place because any of you who've been to Starbucks recently, and again, I stress I'm not a, a Starbucks goer regularly. As I said, I don't buy coffee except for my local coffee shop here whenever I want something really nice. But when I'm traveling, I tend to use Starbucks a fair bit because they're just everywhere and they're open early. I got to be honest, Camille, I, you know personal fact for our listeners, I wake up really early and I need a coffee right away. So I go out and I get a Starbucks at like 5.30 a.m. Um, in any event, so I get there and the first time I get to the Starbucks, I see this huge ad literally plastered all over the Starbucks for like, try our non-dairy favorites. Ooh, well, that sounds exciting. It was. I was like really impressed that they've actually, it was, I don't know about you, Camille, and I can't speak for like, with any certainty, but it is the first time that I've ever seen ads for a non-dairy drink in a major coffee shop. Like it is like, they, I don't remember even what they were. It was like the coconut milk, whatever. And you know, they call all their drinks. Yeah. There's like some things. honey oat latte now too, that I keep seeing ads for. Whatever. Like, sure, okay. So they were very big with the non-dairy and all this stuff. Right. And they say all those things, but of course, apparently the second part of their rollout, well, not their rollout, but what we suggested as their rollout was nowhere in play because they were continuing to charge 80 cents more for the variants that they were trying to sell. 80 cents, Camille. I mean, That's it's just astounding. It's, it's robbery. 80 cents for a non-dairy milk for like literally a cup, like 250 milliliters, right? We did That's the math. what you're getting. Yes, we yeah. did the math. So essentially, we did the math for your for for, for the benefit <laughs> of our listeners. We've analyzed this issue, we've, bringing you the important news. I mean, it does it does depend obviously on whether you get a tall, a grande, or a venti to use the vernacular. But if you average it out as a tall, my guess is you're looking at about 250 milliliters per coffee. So. It, it my again that means per each box there's about four drinks in it which means they're charging three dollars and twenty cents a box and there is freaking no way given that those boxes like retail don't even cost three dollars that like 
there's no way that on wholesale it's costing them $3.20 extra to switch from milk to soy milk. And I refuse to believe it. I, I, you know, maybe it's a dollar more, Camille, maybe two, but there's no way that it's at the level that they're saying. And even if it was, what I can't understand is they go to all the trouble of advertising all this stuff, and yet there's no incentive no even, okay, try these. We've lowered our extra costs for a certain time. They're essentially asking the consumer to buy these things. And they say they're doing it for sustainability and other reasons, you know, switching away from dairy. But they're making profit, too. Like, it's just a pure profit play. It just really bugs me and seems to be kind of hypocritical given the stated purpose for doing this. Yeah, no, I, I feel your frustration. I think you're right. I accept that there's some price differential between dairy alternatives and cow's milk, but it's it's not as much as they're profiting from, uh, you know, they're essentially profiting off of the goodwill of people who are trying to do make a better choice for the environment right now. And, you know, that's fine. They're a profit-based company. They can do that. But if they are actually interested in promoting these alternatives, they should consider dropping that price down just a little bit. And I also just want to add for the record that I refuse to say venti and grande and whatever the other one is at Starbucks. I'm like, hey, I want a small coffee, medium coffee. I don't I do not do it either. I'm just like you. I was like, I, do it. I did it for our podcast listeners, Camille. That's why I did it with that funny voice. Grande, oh, good. I'm glad you're not as venti. pretentious as I was no, fearing for a no, minute. No, I, I always go in there. Like and there's a word so. in English for that. Well, I, I have to say the good news is I got to say this collapsible cup thing is pretty good because I, I get charged the small and it's it's it seems to me to be somewhere in between a small and a medium. So it's like, you oh, do they bonus. do they give you like, yeah, they 10 take cents 10 off cents too? off, too. So it's it's going to pay for itself in four hundred and fifty, you know, forty five hundred in forty five. No, in, in two thousand visits, it'll pay for itself in just two thousand <laughs> easy visits. But that's not why I did it. But I agree with you on all counts. It really. And I got to tell you, as you can tell, because I'm agitated, Camille, this is my agitation agitated voice. I'm just like, it's annoying. I, I really like they're trying to do something cool. They've put the advertising into the space. And at the same time, there's like, they're gouging people to do it. I don't understand how that doesn't rebound when the people when they start punching in the, the $6 for your coffee. Oh, here's 80 cents more because you want to try it with coconut milk as we're urging you to do. It's just I, I, I'm, I'm kind of I just find it so hypocritical and inconsistent with the well, message they're trying to send. Okay, well, maybe if any of our listeners have suggestions about coffee chains or shops that don't charge a premium for non-dairy milks, please let us know. I, I don't really drink coffee out that much. In fact, I don't drink much coffee these days at all because, I don't know, it makes me feel weird these days. I get, like, super anxious when I have coffee, so I'm trying not to. But, uh, you know, tea and other beverages can include non-dairy milk, too. So I'd still be curious to know if anyone's found a chain that doesn't charge extra. There, there are and some. And we'll share that I information that. maybe on the next episode. Yeah, there definitely are some. No doubt about that. Yeah. And uh, one last note for us on a personal that I, I just am too overjoyed to talk about, uh, uh, Camille, um, over after some heavy negotiations between both of our offices, you know, your assistant called my assistant <laughs> who emailed with my, you know, second. No, it was just us. I so, um, <laughs> yeah, I wish to. Pawn order is going international. I am very excited about this. We are scheduled to have our first, because we, have we done one in the U.S.? We have not, eh? I'm just, before I go crazy here. I don't think say, so. No, I don't think we have either. So we are doing our first international pawn order in the spring, and it is going to be not in the U.S., Camille. Do you want to reveal where we're going to do pawn order? 
It's going to be in Amsterdam, which I've never been to before, but Peter, you know the city quite well, so I think you'll show me around. But yeah, basically, Peter, you've got a, a family trip to, to Germany, which is not far from Amsterdam, where your wife's parents live. And I've got a conference uh, not too long after that in Europe. So we're going to try to meet up in Amsterdam for a few days first and have some fun and do some work. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm super, we, we not only, not only is it not too far from my wife's uh, uh, home, it's where we fly out of. So it's, uh, it's perfect. We're just going to head back a couple of days early. And uh, I am hoping we're going to put together a very special pawn order with maybe a couple of guests. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But I'm really excited to take us a pawn order on a European adventure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of upcoming conferences and trips, Reminder that the call for submissions for the upcoming Canadian Animal Law Conference is currently open. So that conference, we've talked about it last episode, it's going to be held September 11th to 13th in Toronto. And it um, was just a fantastic conference. When we had the inaugural one last year in Halifax, the feedback that we got from multiple participants was that it was one of the best conferences that they've ever been to. And we're hoping that this year is going to be just as good at least, or perhaps even better. So if you're listening and you've got something to say about animal law, we would love to get your submission. You can visit CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca to send it in and find out what you need to provide. Uh, But we're looking for a range of uh, people to discuss scholarly topics, discuss practical litigation strategies, legislative change, social change, anything uh, within the heading of animal law. Uh, not just for Canadians. This has a significant degree of international content too. The the audience is primarily Canadian, but we think it's important to uh, learn lessons from people doing amazing work across the globe. So love to have you there and love to have you participate as a speaker. Absolutely. Very excited about that. Now, we also want to remind you to leave us a review and add to, we have, Camille, 126 five-star reviews and only one one-star review. But we've already talked about the one-star review. Let's add to our 126 five-star reviews. And we got, this could be one of my favorite reviews ever. And I'm going to read it. It's from Mr. Rando, who calls it a great podcast for listeners of all levels. I love this pod. Peter and the award-winning Camille do an excellent job of explaining a variety of complex issues in a concise and simple way that accommodates listeners of any background. Thanks for the restaurant and apparel, uh, grinning goat tips. We love that, don't we, Camille? That's especially great. As a new vegan, this pod has helped tremendously. P.S. Oh, here we go. Heroes and zeros for the win. Now, let me just say, Mr. Rando, if you put in Peter and the award-winning Camille and you did that deliberately, you really get me. I just just want to say thank you. If it was an accident, I don't know what to say. I'm going to assume it was deliberate. You can write in and let us know. But God, I love that. Thank you so much. Peter has never felt so understood as he does right now. (laughs) It's so funny. It's the first thing I noticed when I saw the review. The award-winning Camille and Peter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And a reminder that you can also support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon is a platform where you can support your favorite creators like podcasts. You can give a very low amount or a very high amount. You're welcome to give us a very high amount if you want. But huge thanks to a bunch of recent Patreon supporters, including Roxanne, Jessica, and Callum and Jillian. 
We yeah. really appreciate your support. It's what helps us keep bringing you these episodes. And uh, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash paw and order. Absolutely. We really want to thank you. And, and, and uh, we, we did get over our $200 a month goal, Camille. We shouldn't tell anybody, but it, we're really thrilled that we did. I thought we might be getting um, a, a Patreon sponsor from Thule987654 after I stopped saying your name for one episode. But apparently that hasn't come in yet. <laughs> We'll wait. <laughs> we'll keep waiting. In the meantime, I'll tell you what you can do. You know what you can do if you're not on Patreon? You can go see our awesome friends over at The Grinning Goat, uh, which is Canada's vegan online shopping store, and get a wonderful uh, 15% off on your next purchase by using the code PAW15. We absolutely adore The Grinning Goat, and... Um, we love shopping there. In fact, I've been wearing my boots and they're starting to get worn out. So I think it's almost time because I bought them a couple of years ago that I go back looking for something new at the Grinning Goat. Oh, that's exciting. And they ship across the country. So no matter where you're located in this lovely nation, you can get their products. Absolutely. Okay, that takes us uh, into our news section, Camille. And it's a little, a little light this week. We've been very busy and, uh, you know, but it's a little light, but we do have a couple of good stories. And our, our first story seems to follow up on a topic that I'm pretty sure got raised on this show not too long ago. Indeed. So there's a piece in the Ottawa Citizen arguing that the Supreme Court should ditch the fur on its ceremonial robes. So if you've ever seen a photo of the Supreme Court justices, all nine of them dressed up like Santa Claus, you'll know what we're talking about. And we'll, we'll share a link to the story so you can see it, too. But it's written by a woman named Lauren Hollis in The Ottawa Citizen, and she interviews a couple of activists who talk about why fur is inappropriate in this modern age. It's because it's a product of suffering, and it's a completely unnecessary fashion statement. Now, there are some other voices in this piece defending the use of fur, saying it's tradition, but I just think that argument is incredibly weak. Uh, anytime you start using the idea of tradition to justify something that has fallen out of fashion because it's cruel and unnecessary and simply has no place in modern society, I think that's just a losing argument. Uh, yeah, what do you think, Peter? Tradition, Camille? I want to break out into my best Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition is all, Camille. I, uh, later on today, I'm going to get onto my dog sled and traditionally head down to, you know, the local hunting grounds where I can traditionally do what I do best. I mean, tradition, I've, haven't been, um, compelled by the idea of tradition as a standalone justification for doing something since I was like 13. Um, it seemed to me that if you use tradition as the reason to do something, you'd never change anything, no matter what the objection to it. Uh, the tradition can be used as a reason to uphold just about every odious practice we've ever used um, in this country. And I think tradition is a terrible reason to do something on its own. So, um, you know, this story bothers me. I talked about it last day. I think the time is going to come eventually. It's just inevitable, given uh, modern statistical trends, that I, as crazy as it might sound now, like 
a vegan will eventually get to the Supreme Court, just like, um, you know, an aboriginal person will get to the Supreme Court. And just because none of these things or a person of color is going to get to the Supreme Court, none of these things have ever happened, doesn't mean they won't. And what's going to happen then, as it has in every other situation when this has happened, is that those people are going to bring their own ideas, cultures, and views to the traditional costume right? I mean, it seems inevitable to me, because this has happened in every other jurisdiction I'm aware of, that, for example, when the first um, Aboriginal person is appointed to the Supreme Court, which is going to happen, they're going to want to bring some aspect of their culture into the traditional gown, right? Or the traditional robe. And I guarantee you that's going to be accommodated. No one's going to say, wait a minute, tradition says that all nine judges have to look the same. That's just not going to happen. It's going to get ditched. And I think that at the same time, you get someone who objects to having the fur, the idea that you're not going to let them become a Supreme Court justice because they don't want to wear fur on their, you know, three time a year coat is 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 ridiculous. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, and also interesting in this article is that at least one former Supreme Court justice uh, seems to potentially agree with with this view. So Frank Iacobucci, he was a justice on the court from 1991 to 2004, and he says it was very, very, very heavy very impractical with modern day ventilation and heating is, is what he had to say about the, the robes. Um, and then he goes on to say that he appreciates the, for, the, the, the formality and tradition of the robes, but if they're not representing what the court represents, then they should be retired. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that change is, is um, potentially too far off here. It's an issue where the public is moving away from fur at uh, astronomical rates, fashion designers are abandoning it. And really, it just shows up on things like fur trim on coats now, where the public half the time doesn't even realize that they're actually wearing fur. So I'm optimistic that this will be one change we'll see, certainly within my the scope of my legal career. I, I think that's right. And, and I mean, the, the interesting thing at the... Uh the, the article's well-written and starts off by pointing out that Queen Elizabeth, a stickler for tradition, is going to start wearing fake fur. And that's just a matter of time. And it seems to me, you know, you go through each of these traditional situations and eventually, at some point, they just come to be left behind. And I think that's just uh, the nature of the beast at some point. Yeah, yeah. So we'll keep you posted. Speaking of All fur. All right, and then... Speaking of fur, oh, this is so disappointing. So you may have heard this already. The story's not completely new, but Ontario is planning to permanently bring back the spring bear hunt. So I'll just give you a little bit of a history lesson on this issue and the reasons why it's so dangerous. So in um, 1999, the former PC government under Premier Mike Harris, there was an environment minister named John Snowbellin who was quite progressive on this issue. He canceled the spring bear hunt after years of advocacy because it was his view and the government's view that baby bears, bear cubs, were being orphaned by the spring bear hunt. So their mothers emerged from their dens after hibernation they're often, uh, you know, starving at this point. They need to get out and eat and, and find some food. So they're out there foraging and trying to find food so they can sustain themselves and nurse their babies. And hunters come along and shoot them. Uh, the way the spring bear hunt often happens in the spring, too, is that the bears are baited. So it's not like the bears are just wandering in the woods and hunters come across them. The hunters attempt to attract them by setting up these traps, essentially, where they, they throw things like day-old baked goods into the middle of a, a circle and wait till the bears, hungry bears come along and then just gun them down. So, Peter, it's... Um, 
It's not the case that hunters are necessarily targeting female bears. In fact, they're supposed not to. It is an offense to shoot a female bear um, or, or a mother bear or nursing bears, I think is what it says. But there's no way to distinguish between nursing mother bears and other black bears. Uh, it's simply not possible for hunters to make that distinction, even at close range. It's very, very difficult for a trained person. So uh, this issue came back in 2014. The previous liberal government decided that it would enact a limited trial run spring bear hunt entirely due to pressure from hunters who are a very powerful lobby in Ontario and many places in this country. And they wanted to Camille, profit from Camille, showing people. Can I, can I just what? like, I, did, I, I just want to dispute that fact. Did you say they're a powerful lobby group? I mean, it's not like they enacted a piece of legislation that, you know, solidifies their right to continue to blow animals away for the rest of time. I mean, come on, let's get real here. Oh, wait, they let's did that, real. didn't they? <laughs> it's right, the, right to hunt legislation. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the, been a, it's, a big thing that they pushed. It's the craziest law I've ever seen. I have never seen a law like this. Anyway, go back to the bears and then we'll talk about the law because the law is ludicrous. Well, they use their political power in all kinds of ways to benefit their interests and never benefit the uh, the animals. And at the time, the government's like, oh, yeah, this is going to reduce human-bear interactions. But uh, there's no evidence that that does assist. In fact, hunting probably increases human-bear interactions. And the thing that decreases it is education programs like this program that the government did have called BearWise that taught people to stay away from bears and not leave out attractants. So there's no public safety justification. And now we've got the PC government under Doug Ford moving ahead with a permanent reopening of the spring bear hunt. They haven't even released the results of the trial spring bear hunt. So, you know, they're trying to say it's a good thing, but we don't even know what the evidence suggests about what happened during the trial. It's really frustrating, Peter. Yeah, seriously. But although I love the way they talk about permanent. I mean, everything's permanent in government until it's repealed. Like, it's not like it's permanent. I mean, it, it, it's it's like... This ridiculous law, if, if any of you want to ever go look, maybe you're sitting there at home thinking to yourself, what does a bad law look like? Or what does a stupid law look like? Go look at the Heritage Hunting and Fishing Act in Ontario. It is literally the dumbest law that's ever been enacted. It has like three, set. no, it has two sections in it, Camille. And essentially the main section is this. A person has a right to hunt and fish in accordance with the law. Like, it has, it has no purpose. It has literally no legal force, no purpose other than to make an assertion that we have the Heritage Hunting and Fishing Act. So when I say it has no purpose, that's not quite right. It has a purpose, and the purpose is to make it really difficult for future governments to evaluate the, the realities of hunting. Not impossible, because they just have to repeal this stupid act that has one section and does nothing. But at the end of the day, it's essentially just an assertion. It's like, it's like if you, just to give you an example of what this is, imagine we had a law called the Walking Act, Camille. And it's like, a okay. person has a right to walk down the street. That's like in accordance with the law. That's what the law would be. Or, or the Eating Act, or the Breathing Act. Like, literally, that's the essence of this law. And the only thing it does is make it difficult for future generations because if they want to have a, a meaningful discussion about whether hunting should exist at all, and let's be clear, we're not quite at that stage, right? We're not even close to that. They'd have to go through the, 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 you know, the bother of repealing this dumb act. 
Yeah, that's that's an interesting. And we should maybe consider having an episode at some point about these absolutely stupid laws like right to hunt, right to farm legislation, which keeps popping up every now and then. And in fact, has a quite a long history in Canada and elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It would be a great uh, uh, topic. We'll call it, you know, useless laws and the impact they actually have on advancing reform. So it could be a fun one to do. All right, uh, that brings us to our main topic, which is a wonderful discussion about how animal welfare laws interact with penal laws. And we have an expert discussing the issue of imprisonment and what it means for animal cruelty offenders. Indeed. So Justin Marceau is a professor at the University of Denver who's written a book called Beyond Cages. And you were lucky enough to sit down with him to talk about why incarcerating humans and incarcerating animals needs to be critically examined. And, and as animal activists who are seeking freedom for animals and trying to get them out of unfortunate situations where they suffer, uh, there has been a bit of a disturbing reliance within the animal protection movement, not so much in Canada, but more so elsewhere, on uh, incarcerating humans and seeking punitive criminal justice measures as a way of protecting animals. And the book provides an interesting critique of that. So I am here today, I am speaking with uh, Justin Marceau, who is a professor at the, the University of Denver. Uh, Justin, I think, was rumored to be coming on this show many, many years ago, <laughs> not many years ago, many months ago, wasn't able to, but I'm really pleased to finally have a chance to speak to uh, Professor Justin Marceau, so welcome to Pawn Order. Thank you, I'm happy to be here with you. We are uh, excited to have Justin because uh, we want to talk about, he has written one of the uh, most exciting new books about uh, animal uh, law in a long time, and uh, the book is called Beyond Cages, and it looks at the relationship between uh, criminal law and animal uh, abuse, I believe, and uh, I thought I would invite Justin on to talk a little bit about it. It's an important book. Justin, um, why don't you tell me first just why did you decide to write this? What piqued your interest in this particular subject? Sure. Thanks, Peter. I, I mean, so I've long been interested in criminal law. It's one of the areas I teach and, and specialize in and interested in my practice in the death penalty and sort of focusing on, um, you know, marginalized, vulnerable victims. And I think in part, criminal law brought me to animal law and animal law has brought me back to, to criminal law. So, um, you know, I think all of us have this kind of temptation or visceral reaction to the animal abuser as that's the person that should go to jail. Um, and I shared that view when I entered animal law and this kind of always was a tension for me. And so it just, you know, as you know, being in the academy gives you the luxury to have time and think through things. So that's kind of where this project came from. So we have a lot in common, obviously. I also came to uh, criminal law to animal law and sort of went through that journey and realized trying to... It's, it's interesting, this is an aside because it doesn't get into your research, but I wonder if this was your reaction. I remember when I started getting in, in particular, because in Canada we had the whole issue with the SPCA investigating, in New Zealand SPCA investigating, and I remember, I remember the first time, because I had been a criminal lawyer for a while, that I started really looking at the way we prosecuted animals, and my first reaction was literally, like, I looked at them like, this is insane, like, this will never work, like, it is completely flawed, and I was saying that both from the prosecutorial standpoint and the defendant standpoint, I'm like, like, where does disclosure come from, and how do they know how 
how to do searches and seizures. It was just like everything about it was designed incorrectly. Anyway, did you have that reaction? No, I mean, it's, it, it, absolutely. It's, it's, a, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you have two different worlds colliding and you think, wow, they don't know anything about the other world. Um, I mean, my reaction in part, though, was driven, I had just, in, in some of my early indoctrinations, been kind of given these flyers and taught that, uh, you know, if you aren't, um, really hard on the prosecution side, then we're not going to achieve social change, which was exactly the opposite of what I was kind of preaching on the other side of my life. So there was kind of early a, a dissonance for me too. Okay, so let's get more into that. Let's talk about how that dissonance manifested, if you can sum it up, obviously, um, um, you know, to the best you can. Like, what, what is the main thesis of the book or the examination that it entails? Sure, I, I, I mean, I'm always loath to attribute one thesis to it. I hope, I hope readers will, will find their own meaning. But my, I mean, at a conceptual level, what I'm trying to, to stake out a claim about the connections of suffering, I mean, that the, 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 there are interlocking oppressions here, and that if we sort of say, okay, here is this bad abuser, um, and we focus our attention on that person, the, the, the result is that our gaze is distracted, right? So you have it from a utilitarian perspective, to put it differently, uh, we want to focus on the most suffering by the most animals. And if in 43 states, for example, in the United States, um, agricultural practices are exempted from cruelty, the animal cruelty statute, by definition, is focusing us on sort of a sideshow. And so I, I say, look, A, I don't like putting people in prison as a normative matter, and B, this isn't good for the animals because it is a sideshow that is distracting us, right? If I, th I think of myself, if I was a, um, an undercover agent thinking about a disruptive operation, what I would do most is go undercover in the animal protection movement, if there, particularly if there was an animal-friendly legislature, and say, we've got to get these rogue abusers, right? We have to get the, the cat abuser, or the dog abuser, because it's such a, it creates a moral panic that I think distracts from the real suffering, the, the, the majority of suffering of, of most animals. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm in that camp. I couldn't agree more. And not only that, I think I would go one step further, or I'm sure you say this in the book and whatever. I, I'm of the view that it's, 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 it's a tough one because you're telling people, in a sense, they feel like you're telling them don't prosecute people who are, you know, beating a dog with a stick. But my concern is, I'm concerned, I mean, my work focuses on dialogue and discourse and the language around animal abuses. As long as we continue to classify cruelty as that, that's what... That's what bothers me is this idea of the scope of the prosecutions. I've had this argument many times. As long as we continue to do that, that allows the industries that are really inflicting the greatest degree of harm to, to quickly deflect and say, well, we are not animal abusers by definition. That is not what we're doing. Um, that is wrong. Even when it takes place in the farming context, what you get is, I used to call it, uh, I still call it the problem of the rogue. In my book, it's called, the, I call it the rogue. And in farms, what you have is when you do have that sort of abuse, it's a rogue operator. So as a result, the us and them problem in terms of defining what cruelty is, is obviously a big part of what we're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, that, I, I draw that point out even in um, sort of the context of the U.S. ag-gag laws. So one of the ag-gag laws in the U.S. in Idaho was enacted in the wake of a Mercy for Animals investigation. And it was just so telling because two things happened in the wake of that investigation. One, the industry said we need ag-gag laws and the legislature complied. And two, the industry said, you know, 
we have these bad apples in our barrel and we just need to take care of these rogues, right? We, we A, need to have them deported and B, I hope they're criminally prosecuted first, right? So there's a sort of scapegoating that takes place. Uh, and that's why I think it's really difficult even on factory farms, right? We might differ on that because I, you know, I want some solutions, but the, the prosecution of the low-level workers, even in these sort of terrible instances, I think it's about the system. It's not even about that particular worker. Um, and in the U.S., by the way, they're, they're almost all um, you know, recent immigrants, documented or undocumented. And so this sort of uh, scapegoating or blame doesn't do anything, right, for, for those families, those communities that we have sort of forced into this labor force of kind of mass killing and abuse of animals, most of which is legal, as you say. And then occasionally they do something that, that crosses that line. Yeah, well, we don't disagree as much as you think. I'm not against prosecuting them, but what I would actually like to see happen is why don't we actually do what we would do in just about any other situation? Because I have no interest in getting the workers. What I want to do is <laughs> leverage the workers. I have no problem going after a factory farm because to me that would be beneficial, both in terms of both in terms of every sense of what we're saying. It would help redefine what cruelty is. It doesn't redefine cruelty when you get the low-level worker, but if you get the practice, that does redefine cruelty. So I just don't understand. When they went after Chilliwack, I'm like, screw these guys. I'd cut them all loose. Cut them all loose and get them to testify. And for people who think that's crazy, I'm like, it's the equivalent of cutting loose all the low-level drug traffickers to get the importers. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you read, I mean, you read Timothy Pasharat's book uh, every 12 seconds. You, you watch these investigations and you know criminal law. You see all of the foundations of vicarious criminal liability for the corporation, but you never see the prosecution. And time and again, I've asked the prosecutors who are presenting on a case, why didn't you prosecute the corporation? They say, ah, you know, and there's, there's some, we weren't sure we had liability. And they said, well, my understanding is liability follows. It. And they, but then you never see that case, right? But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why we have re in the United States is why we have all these conspiracy liabilities so we can you know, shake down the small level folks to get to the high level folks in, in theory, right? And, but we never do that in the agricultural context at all. So it seems to me, I'm getting an idea here, an inspiration. What we need is an animal version of the wire where we can sort of, we can, we can show how the system works, right? No, I, think, I think that's exactly right. We gotta, we gotta do it, we gotta make it. It's, it's all in the game, it's all in the game. Okay, so can you tell me uh, um, a little bit more like some of the stuff you talk about in terms of, uh, um, you know, the general wrongs? Yeah, I mean, you know, the book is kind of far-reaching in the sense that it does a lot on the idea, the history, and the, the modern concept of animal cruelty prosecutions as, as race-neutral, as, as not having any disparate racial impact effect, excuse me. I, I think that's one of the great myths of our time. We tell ourselves, because we don't have the data, that kind of broken windows, policing, and interventions in the context of, of animal cruelty would not have any racially disparate impact. But it's really remarkable to me to hear people say, well, I, I just don't think that we would have those same problems in animal cruelty, because we have it in every other race-neutral area of law, whether it's traffic crimes or drugs or whatever it is. But we, we've convinced ourselves of sort of this uh, ideological myth that uh, marginalized communities, low-income communities, racialized communities are not going to be dispar disparately impacted by animal cruelty, which I think is A, going to be shown to be wrong by the data, and B, is just a terrible myth. I also focus a lot of attention on kind of the concrete harms that 
that flow from a carceral strategy. And one of those that I showed took, I, I mentioned this often because it, it was the most uh, laborious part of the, the research in this project, as I'm sure you can appreciate, was documenting the trade-offs that the movement made in the US for felony laws, right? So we wanted to get a felony law and organizations around the country would champion the felony laws as kind of the most important thing that has happened in this decade or something like that. But often we were explicitly trading a felony provision for the agricultural exemption that we were just talking about, right? So in the modern era, what I show is the best predictor of whether a state went ahead and passed an agricultural exemption for animal cruelty was whether they expanded or enacted for the first time a felony law, right? And so these were, these were explicit trade-offs that were happening behind the scenes um, because I had always wondered, well, why did the North Dakota Farm Bureau come out in favor of a felony law? Well, it turns out that they were getting the exemption, right? And so um, it's, it's both, you know, to me that's a very ta tangible and practical measure of what the way the strategies of the movement are playing out on the ground. Right? Their lobbyists knew that they were giving the game away and saying anything that happens on the factory farm that happens a lot, that's customary, not a crime, in order to get this, what you're calling the rogue, right? I mean, it was all focused on the rogue. And so that's what I think, you know, and again, that circles back to the thesis of the book. Where should our focus be? Where is animal suffering at its greatest? It's not that we minimize the victimhood of animals that have, you know, happen to be dogs or cats. They should be getting given attention and given their due. But this is all a distraction to where the suffering really is. And sometimes it's a legislatively enacted distraction that we were complicit in. So just let me say this, I'm going to counterpoint in one small way. I don't think it's a full uh, critique of what you're saying, but I've heard it said, and I believe uh, some speakers are going to talk about it, the idea that we shouldn't go after a federal law because a federal law, a new federal law in Canada, a better cruelty law because it's going to result in a farming exemption. I, I agree and disagree, and the reason I disagree is very clear. I, I think what's even worse than an exemption, believe it or not, is ambiguity about whether an exemption exists. And in the Canadian system, what we have now is theoretically a criminal code provision that applies to everyone, including farming. And I know that because the farm lobby will say that. We are governed by the criminal code. We are governed by this. We are governed by that. Exposing the weaknesses of why the criminal code doesn't actually capture them is actually quite complex. It requires detailed analysis of case law and stuff like that. My view is, let's go for the tougher law. Let's go for a law that deals properly with animal abuse, and if it comes with an exemption, so be it. And my reason for that is because now it's out in the open. And my view is, if you need an exemption to say that cruelty doesn't apply to you, good. Well, the first thing I can say is it depends on the wording of that exemption, whether it includes reasonable, whether it includes uh, other things. And second of all, as I said, to me, the discourse is important. At least I can move past the are you governed by it at all into okay you have an exemption why do you have an exemption what's wrong with that to me I'm I, I guess what I'm trying to say is in my view I'm looking at a long game rather than a short game because right now I'm convinced the ambiguity is negative I like to say um, if you want to talk about my it's it's like Sankoff's cardinal principle of animal law suffering lives in the ambiguity because it really does because it always benefits well I mean that's very Marxist right I, I think that's right I mean I believe in the Marxist I've never been called Marxist before <laughs> But hey, <laughs> well, I, I only mean I, I, I mean only in the sense that, uh, right? I mean this Marxist idea of sharpening the conflict or heightening the contradiction, right? I mean, what you're saying is here in Canada, there's this ambiguity. I want to get it out there. That's good for the long game fight. 
I, I'm sympathetic to that, right? We don't have the, uh, the code structure in the US that, that I understand creates this ambiguity. Um, where we differ probably is just on this point, that I think that the folks in the US would have said the same thing, which, or a similar thing, not the same thing, because we didn't have the code. They would have said, we don't, um, we don't see prosecutions of corporations, like you said, and we still don't in the states that don't have the exemptions, so who cares if we write it out of the statute, right? And my response to that is, it's, I'm also in it for the long game and the discourse, but I think the discourse cuts the other way, which is that um, the criminal law, right? I mean, people like Paul Robinson and others have written that the criminal law in the modern age is sort of supplants religion, right? It is, it is the repository of our, normal, our moral values. And so if we write out farm animal abuse from our criminal code and people just are able to say, no, we don't abuse animals. We are not animal abusers. We, I think it gives them a sort of normative power that they don't currently have. To put it differently, I actually worry about the values that are ensconced in our law and how they're used against us. Another article I was going to come on Paw and Order and talk about was how the American Animal Welfare Act hurts animals, right? And we have this notion of federal legislation that protects animals, but in the article I go through all these examples of institutions and facilities saying, please come to our roadside zoo. We're accredited by the federal government. We are um, sanctioned under the Animal Welfare Act. And, you know, people go and look at bears in a concrete cage and say, well, I guess it's, it must be okay. It, it complies with the Federal Animal Welfare Act. And so I'm concerned about federal legislation in the U.S. You have the same debate that would say, here is what's cruelty and here's, not what's, here's what's not cruel. And what's not cruel is production of animals for food, right? So I, so I you know, but it's a, it's a fair debate. I, I take your point. Yeah, when, that, that's wonderful. So what's next for you, Justin? What's the next uh, area of work when we finish off here? Well, maybe I'm going to join you in Alberta to challenge an upcoming egg egg law, Peter. That would be exciting. <laughs> that would be exciting. <laughs> Thanks very much, Justin. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, Peter. Heroes and Zeros. All right, everybody. It's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, including our recent reviewers' favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and zeros. All right. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you won't have escaped hearing about the, the, our hero this week. It's Joaquin Phoenix for his incredible Oscar speech. He won uh, an award for Best Actor at the Academy Awards the other week. And he spoke at some length in his acceptance speech about oppression and the moral value of animals and uh, specifically singled out the dairy industry and its practice of taking mother cows away from babies. But what I really liked about what he said is that we need to use our voice for the voiceless and consider gender equality, racism, queer rights, indigenous rights and animal rights, because this is all a fight against injustice and uh, why one people, one race, one gender, one species shouldn't have the right to dominate, control, and use and exploit another with impunity. So it was incredibly powerful. I, I thought so, too. Um, I, I listened to it. I mean, obviously, I know um, the facts upon which it's based. Um, but it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was really a great speech, and obviously, it was a great speech um, in a really good um, forum where it had a lot of people who could who could watch it. So uh, it was fantastic. I remember, um, uh, I'm trying to find right now, um, there obviously, as you can imagine, was a lot of response um, and a lot of response from the dairy industry. And um, I especially liked, you know, one of the dairy industry people saying, well, this isn't going to have any impact whatsoever. And if only I remember it um, noting, Camille, 
If only Mr. Phoenix would educate himself on the nutritional value of milk and the animal welfare standards, Camille. If only. Oh, boy. If only. If only we knew a little something more, Camille, we'd realize that dairy is awesome. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's just an education gap. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, Joaquin Phoenix, I believe, is pretty well educated on these yeah. issues. He attends regular vigils at slaughterhouses in Los Angeles, and he's been a longtime advocate for greater rights and protections for animals. So I don't think the education issue is, is the problem with dairy industry, but um, just, nice try on changing the conversation. We just don't understand how you inseminate the cows. I don't get it, Camille. I'm so confused. And and the I forgot, I almost forgot about the welfare standards. My God, especially in Canada. They're just so high, Camille. Camille, the best in the world. Yeah, yeah. So so we've heard. But on a more serious note, Peter, what I, I love about the speech is he reframes animal rights as another social justice uh, issue and reminds people, I think, that this is part of the continuum of caring for other beings, that animals matter. And that when human beings at our best are inventive and creative and use our love and compassion as our guiding principles, we can develop systems of change, in his words, that are beneficial to all sentient beings and to the environment. So I like how he reframes this as not just about animal rights, but as part of the broader work to ensure justice for all. By the way, Camille, on another note, since we're talking about dairy, and this doesn't relate directly to Joaquin Phoenix, um, there was a, a really interesting article, I think it was in the Globe, about uh, a dairy, uh, um, lab-grown dairy, for lack of a better word, um, and how, have you, did you see any of that, about how that is much closer to reality, in fact, it kind of is reality, than lab-grown meat? I, I haven't seen what art, the article you're speaking about, but I know uh, a bit about this. And I know that there's a company called Perfect Day, which is creating bio-identical um, dairy proteins, essentially dairy products from not cows. So um, that's super interesting and I think has massive potential to create real change very quickly. So they already have ice cream out from what I understand. And they were originally um, a company. There was one of the one of the companies was based originally in Edmonton. In fact, I had a former student who took my animals in the law course who went to work for this company. And uh, it's really interesting. Like, it sounds like it's really right over the horizon. And I have yet to taste any of this, but it supposedly, again, creates the, the mouth feel of non-dairy ice cream. And I will just say, as someone who is a pretty big fan of non-dairy ice cream, um, cause I love ice cream. I do think if you put non-dairy ice cream, even the best of the best side to side with ice cream, because I still remember, and it's been a long time, but I do know there's a creaminess and feel to the dairy ice cream. That's, that's different from the non-dairy ice cream as good as it is. Well, well, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, but I guess we'll have to try this product when it comes out and do a little blind taste test. All right, we'll do okay. that. We'll do that. Maybe we'll get a sponsor and then we'll we'll get to try it for free. All right. Well, our zero is uh, Oh no. How, oh no. Well, who, who? Who actually oh, is no. our zero? So the, I'll tell you yeah. about the situation. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I thought you were going to say the name of the subject because that's what comes to mind. But that that being is not our zero. 
No, no. So I guess it's the Toronto and Vancouver International Boat Shows. I think so, And too. I assume there's some sort of chain involved with this. But uh, that, broadly speaking, is our zero for a situation where they are having a water skiing squirrel named Twiggy perform at these events and perform illegally, which is the interesting part of this. Um, in Ontario and British Columbia... It's actually an offense to keep animals like gray squirrels, which Twiggy the squirrel is, in captivity because they're native wildlife. And I think there's additional municipal prohibitions too. Um, specifically in Vancouver, there's a law against using rodents in performances. But the boat show is still promoting or was still promoting these squirrel performances. And apparently they're using Twiggy. It's like some ridiculous sort of, um, they're claiming it's an educational uh, component of the show. And Twiggy about the squirrel educates safety. people about yeah, but water safety and wearing life jackets, like, oh, really? You think that people are going to take lessons from a squirrel about wearing a life jacket? Okay, that's another issue. Anyway, authorities have been alerted and are apparently investigating, but I'm surprised that action wasn't taken more quickly in this regard. Hmm. But Camille, like, to be fair, on the other hand, it's a water skiing squirrel. And he's so cute, Camille. Let's just let it roll. You know, that's like... You know, the, I can, I can literally see a squirrel argument. in my backyard right now who is also very cute. And like anyone who lives in the city or the country, frankly, can see squirrels all the time. So. Yeah, but, but are yeah. they water skiing, Camille? Are they? I mean, come on. Happily, no. That's, that's, that's the counter argument, right? It's so ridiculous. You know, I remember... Um, this stuff drives me crazy to a certain extent. I remember... A really good speech. This is in my early days. You know, you know how it is. Every once in a while, you have a really good speaker, and some aspect of the speech resonates with you. And this was um, way back. This was. Um, it's got to be around 2008. Um, I was in Australia for a speech by Bruce Wagman who's done a lot of work over the years with the ALDF, and he authored a book on international animal welfare law and all that stuff. And he was giving a speech because he's done a lot of work with animals and entertainment. And I remember his line was this. He's like, if you ever see a wild animal um, in like a television show or a movie and they're acting in a certain way, he says, you can just presume that something has gone horribly wrong. And there is a lot of cruelty that goes on behind the scene before those animals ever get into the film. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, obviously, squirrels are not aquatic animals. Last time I checked, they're not marine mammals. And they don't ski on water skis, naturally. So you can only imagine what went into forcing the squirrel to perform those behaviors is very likely not so pleasant. And good on these cities for having those provisions. I do hope they enforce them and lay charges after the fact for this ridiculous charade. Yeah, you call it charade, Camille. But in reply, no, I won't do that again. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, it, it, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you. It's like, uh, I'm telling you, I guarantee you there's people out there saying, why are you raining on our parade? We came here to see Twiggy, the water skiing squirrel. I don't know what accent that is. I'm trying to make it as neutrally inoffensive as possible. You know, but that's what it would be. It's like, we came here to see Twiggy. And you animal advocates, my God, how dare you stop us from seeing a water skiing squirrel? Yeah, well, we're going to keep shutting down everybody's fun so long as it's not fun for the animals. So no apologies for that. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do, Camille. We just we shut down all the fun. Yep. Yeah, all right. Well, great. on that note. <laughs> yeah. On that note, 
on that note, we will um, we will get back to our shutting down the fun ways. And Camille, I don't know what we have in store. Probably nothing. But the next time we meet up on these interweb airwaves, it'll be episode 50, a half century. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So until next time, listeners, signing off. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!